grab them afterwards and um, take them to lunch. All right. Here we go. We, uh, we're picking up in our series in the book of Ephesians today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you weren't here last week, and I don't say this too many weeks, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you. Hop online, um, download the message from last week, because it really is going to set our, our course and the direction of where we go in the rest of not only this study, but as we talk about being a church that believes in gospel transformation, that, that the gospel makes a difference in our life, we talked last week about our role in that. And, and we said last week that we, it's not that we don't work, it's that we work differently, with a different motivation, and that we work towards different things. We looked at this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, urge you to walk in a manner, to live in a manner worthy or, or fitting of the calling to which you have been called. And we said last week, the calling to which we have been called has to be what he talked about in Ephesians chapters 1 verses 3. And essentially it is the gospel. That God, when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, reached down and saved us and rescued us. And so what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, it's really the hinge of the whole book where we move from these great truths about what God has done for us to, all right, then what do we do with that? Like, it's great that I'm redeemed. It's great that I'm adopted into his family. It's amazing that I'm saved and that his grace covers and carries and leads and guides me. But how does that change my life? And Paul starts first off by saying, well, the whole Christian life is defined by growing into and up in what we already are, which is the redeemed. As we just sang, we can sing a song. Isn't it true that we can sing a song so many times and we can sing it, but really not hear it and not believe it? I mean, we sing, we are the redeemed, not someday we will be the redeemed. That's intentional, friends. You are the redeemed today, if your hope is in Jesus. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Ryan, that's great, but what does it have to do with my life? I'm glad you asked that question, because the answer is everything. Everything. And so the rest of the book of Ephesians... Paul is going to unpack for us the way that this calling, the gospel, presses on every single area of our life, from the way that we talk to the way that we live together in community, to marriage, to the way that we work, to the way that we parent, every area, every area of our life. And he says, I want you to be people who, who live, who walk in a manner of the truth and the reality of the gospel. And I, and I want it to get in and permeate every area of your life. And so we begin looking at the way that the gospel presses and the way that the gospel moves in us in this few verses of the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and, and I'm, or 1 through 6. And I'm warning you, we're talking this morning about something that we all long for and that we all want and that we all on some very core base level of our DNA and the way that God has designed us need. But we're talking about something that we all have the ability to 
absolutely destroy. And that we have the propensity to push back on. And we have the the unique ability in each of our minds to sort of justify why it's not a fit for us. And what we're talking about this morning is community. Is life together. We all need it to be loved, to be cared for, to be supported, to be known. That's why it's fitting that we welcome new members today. I have a confession to make. That wasn't by design. (laughs) But we're talking about how do we, as a group of people, function together? Because so many of our lives, if we were to be honest, so many of our lives are marked by loneliness and they're marked by being not known, but, but being unknown. And I think as we move further and further into the digital age, and, I, and I'm not opposed to Facebooking, you can, you can friend me. I'm not opposed to tweeting, you can follow me. I'm not opposed to being LinkedIn, please, let's link. But as we progress further and further into a digital age that proposes connection through the World Wide Web. I think we run the risk of dancing around actual true connection. And actually, I read this week that, that what they're deciding and what they're seeing in social networking sites that provide this sort of quasi-connection is that they may actually contribute to people feeling more lonely and feeling more disconnected. Listen, because I can hop online and see a party that I wasn't invited to. How dare you? And I can see people connecting and I think to myself, well, why aren't I doing that? And I think as we live in an age of electronic connection, here's sort of my I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think what the church has to offer becomes more and more unique. I think what the church has to offer becomes more and more unique. It becomes more and more needed. And it becomes connection, community, the fact that you actually get to sit next to another person that you can touch, that you can talk to, that you can walk with, that you can go to coffee with and enjoy. The fact that you can actually connect with people here may be the greatest apologetic that we have stepping into our world. And I don't want us to lose it. I I don't want us to lose it. Because we, you were uniquely designed to need other people. Not, Not just a nice sort of accessory to your life, not a nice addition, but you need other people. All right, I want you to turn to the next person next to you and say, I need you. And then the person on the other side who you don't like as much, I guess. (laughs) Just kidding. Turn to them and say, I need you. I need you. Did you know the studies show? Studies show. The social isolation, the the being lonely. And so so many of us, if we're honest, that's that's where we live a lot of our lives. The being lonely leads to sleeping disorders, high blood pressure, rising stress, It can weaken your immune system. The people who are lonely have far less healthy 
lifestyles have an increased propensity to drink more alcohol than is good for them, which we could debate how much that is, but we don't have enough time today. Eating more fattening foods, exercising less than people who are connected. So here's my question. If it's something we all need, and if it's something we all want, why are we, and I don't mean we as in South, but just we as people, why are we so bad at it? I mean, if it's something that we all need and we all desire and we all long for and we all want, then why are we so bad at living life together in community? I thought about that this week. You know, my, my answer is a one-word answer. Me. Me. I, I mean, if I'm honest, here's my, here's, here's, I want my own agenda. Probably more than I want yours. Because I think mine's right. And, and I'd rather have you serve me than to serve you. And we could go on and on and on. But as we look at it and we trace it back through the scriptures, God's design is that we wouldn't live life alone. And yet the very first thing that happens, if you look at sin in the garden, the first thing that Adam and Eve do is they go and they run and they hide and they cover themselves. Not just, not just physically, but, but metaphorically speaking too. They say, listen, I am not worthy to be known. And whenever the connection with God is severed, whenever it's severed horizontally, vertically, there we go, it's also severed horizontally. And I want to talk today about the way that the gospel allows us to step back into life with each other in a way that brings hope. In a way that allows us to have people to walk with even when life gets really hard and really dark. You see, the Ephesian church was sort of this mishmash of people. There were some people who had come out of Judaism, but there was a large portion of this church that had come out of paganism. Remember, the church in Ephesus is right on this sort of port city. It's this port city, and so they had a lot of different people and different ideas running through this city. There was a, it was a pluralistic society, so you had different, pe- different people of different faiths, to different lifestyles, different stages, different economic statuses, and they were all put in one church. And God says to them, do life together. Be unified for my name's sake and for your joy. And let me, let us unpack together how that happens. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, read like this. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We've talked about that. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right, so here's what the Apostle Paul is going to do in this section of Scripture. He's going to say, this is the way that the gospel presses on your life 
in such a way that allows you to interact with the people around you in a way that brings life to them, that brings joy to you, and that lets us live as a true community together. Because here's the deal. The way that we live in community, Jesus says in John chapter 17, verses 21, or verses 20 and 21, is going to be the bullhorn to the world that he's the Christ. Let me just read this to you. John chapter 17. This is why this is so important for us to get. Verses 20 and 21 read like this. I don't ask, just Jesus praying in the garden. I don't ask for these, my disciples, only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that... Now, now, if you have your own Bible, circle those two words, because what Jesus is going to say is, this is the reason that I want the church united. This is the reason that, that I want them to have the type of relationship that we have, that there's this, there's this connectedness, this always pointing to the other. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The way that we interact with each other, friends, is the greatest message we can give the world around us about who Jesus is. It's great. I want us to continue to do evangelistic outreaches. I want us to do more of them. I believe in it. I love the fall festival, seeing tons of people from our community come. I'm excited for an old-fashioned Christmas here where we get to invite neighbors and have people come here and, and, and to hear about Jesus. And, and I, I love all of that, and I believe in all of it. But listen, if we don't love each other and walk with each other well, people will not believe the message that we give them, that the God of the universe welcomes them if we can't welcome each other. If we can't welcome each other. This is... So important for us. So important. And it's the the gospel, the calling that we've received, that actually allows us to step into this. And here's where I want to frame this whole discussion for us, is that community, our life together, is the lab in which we learn to apply the gospel to our lives. It's the lab in which we learn to apply the gospel to our lives. I can remember being in physics class as, as a senior in high school, and, and I loved physics. I liked, I liked math, and I liked the equations, and I liked sort of being able to see the way that this would play out in my head. But my, my favorite part of physics was lab day, where we would actually get to see, you know, the, the centripetal force and the ball stay in the little track or whatever it was, right? See, lab day was always where you saw if the theory actually worked in practice. And so, that's what we get to do together. We get to see, and we get to test if the gospel really is as powerful as the Bible says that it is. We get to test it by the way that we live with each other and the way that we interact with each other and the way that we love each other and support each other. We get to see if it really works. 
See, the Bible is going to say it does work. It does. And if it isn't working here, if it isn't working in our relationships, then we don't believe it. We don't believe it. And so he says, live a life worthy of the calling that you've been called with all humility. With all humility. Here's the way I want to phrase this for us. Is that we embrace relationships of service rather than selfishness. We embrace relationships of service rather than selfishness. See, humility is set in contrast to being proud, to being self-seeking, to being out for me. See, humility isn't necessarily thinking less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And let's just sort of play this out because we're going to do this a few different times, but I want to set a good foundation for us so we see the way that we're working this and the way that we want the gospel to apply. Let's ask a question. How does the gospel apply to our lives in a way that makes me humble? Well, you don't have to flip back too far in the book of Ephesians to see some things that were true about you. Let me, let me just remind you of a few, if I may. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and he made you alive with Christ. Let's journey a little bit further, deeper into chapter 2. You were severed from God alienated from the God of the universe, the life-giving God of the universe, separate from the promises that were in Christ. So you were dead, you were cut off in life, and you, of life, true life, and you were cut off from the promises of a God that says that I love you and I care about you. And Jesus reached down and in his grace and in his mercy saved you. So the question is, where in there do we find anything, one that we do, or two that we can go, yes, yes, I can. I mean, the mantra of Christianity is I can't, but he can. I, I can't, but he, but he did. I could not save myself, but, but he saved me. He rescued me. And when our identity is firmly planted in the gospel, when we remember what he's done and his reach towards us, it informs our whole identity. I love the way that Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified. Like, I am dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's an identity-shifting mindset. Where we're going, this isn't about me anymore. In fact, I'm, I'm just, I'm dead. He saved me. He rescued you, me. He made me new. And God, you have been good to me. It rescues us from the pit of pride. From having to always think that I'm right. And having to always prove that I'm right. You see, here, here's, a, here's a key truth. You cannot love somebody and compete with them. 
Maybe on the football fields you can, but not in life. You can't love the person next to you and want their good and feel like you need to be better than them. And you see, the gospel says, listen, no, we all crawl to the throne. He rescues, he saves, and it evokes this humility in us that nothing else can. I can't root you on and think of you as better than myself or think of you more than I think of me if I want to be right, if I want to be better, and if I want to beat you. I can't. In a very practical way, the gospel rescues us from us. So he says, walk with all humility and gentleness. Here's the next one we come to. That in this lab of life where we apply the gospel, learn how to apply the gospel to our life, we commit to coming alongside people rather than having power over them. very different than the world's system of operating. I I love this because the word gentleness or meekness, maybe in your translation, is literally to have power that's under control. It's not to be powerless. It's not even to take a step back from our power. It's to realize that we do have power and that we choose to use it for the betterment of other people, not for the betterment of ourselves, to say, can you see how great I am? Can you see how good I am? We're going to be gentle. Walk with people in gentleness. We need to realize, friends, that we are, that you are, that I am a person who's in progress. You're a person that's in progress. I love this Anonymous quote that says, Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfections. How do we walk with people when we think that they're wrong? How do we walk with people when we disagree with them? How do we? Do we come alongside of them or do we come powerfully above them? That's what he's talking about. That the gospel gives us the ability to walk with people, not over people. It's a big difference. You ever made that mistake in life where you just run over somebody and, and immediately think, man, one of two things, either didn't mean to do that or that felt good. Yeah, me too. But here's what the gospel does. Here's how it allows us to walk gently, with power under control with each other. It frees us of fear. Because the God of the universe has already spoken into my life and said, I complete you, I'm enough for you, I love you, I'm for you, I've adopted you. And so I don't need you to tell me that. And since I don't need you to tell me that, I'm able to step alongside of you instead of running over you. And it also frees frees me of pride. Because I know that but for the grace of God, I go any which way. As I thought about that this week, gentleness gets hard. 
being a gentle person, walking alongside somebody instead of running over them is difficult when I've been hurt. That's what I realized in my own life. It's difficult when I've been hurt. When I feel like I've been wronged, the thing that I want to do is I want to jump in and say, no, I will not be wronged again, one. And two, I'm going to show you that you were wrong and that I was right. And it starts this cycle in me that's really pretty unhealthy. And as the gospel presses more and more on our life, it helps us realize, friends, that he loved us when we were wrong. We were unlovely. He loved us. He paid for us. He purchased us. And it helps us not to respond to pain with power, but to say, no, even in the midst of being hurt and being wronged, I'm willing to walk alongside you and not run over you. Big difference. He goes on. With all humility and gentleness, it's on the screen here if you need it, with patience, bearing with one another in love. All right, let's just take a quick time out. Can I say I love this verse? Because here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is assuming that we're going to need to bear with each other. Hey, here's the deal. You're going to have to bear with me some days. You're going, I'm bearing with you right now, buddy. Yeah, no, okay. It, the Bible does not assume that we are perfect people living this, in this utopic society where everything is great and everything is perfect and everything is brilliant. It assumes that we're going to be a community that's going to need to read, you know what? The gospel frees me to bear with you. To, bear with, to, to walk with you even when this is difficult and even when this is hard. It allows me to actively pursue and step into relationships that are costly, that are difficult. Don't you love that the Bible is not some pie in the sky, just sort of otherworldly book in the sense that it doesn't speak to our real needs? I mean, it's saying... There's going to be days when you need to bear with the person sitting next to you in love. In love. Here's the way that Peter writes this. I love this. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, ferociously, with zeal, since love covers how many? A multitude of sins. Well, his assumption is there's going to be a multitude of sins that need to be covered. I hope this is freeing to you. I, I, I didn't pull the quote, but in, in his book, Life Together, um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes about the fact that true community actually begins when the picture of the ideal dies. He says, true community begins when we start being real with each other. And we get to this point where we realize that everything's not going to be skipping through the field, singing songs and kumbaya together. That there's going to be days when it's a little bit more like I'm bearing with you. But here's the deal, friends. We, we can do that with joy 
when we understand that the God of the universe is born with us. And that he does daily. And that his grace covers. And his grace sustains. I struggle with hearing people say, Christians are are just hypocrites. Because as I read scripture, I'm going, well, we're, we're people in progress. We're striving to love each other. And man, our, our scriptures teach this is going to be hard some days. But we're able to do it as we understand the fact that God has been patient with us. See, if I don't understand that God has been and is being patient with me, there's no way that I have the ability and wherewithal within myself to be patient with you. But when I do, everything changes. I just wrote down a few sort of how do we live this out? How do we do this? How do we bear with each other? Um, let me just throw out a few. I've got, I've got four ways and I'm going to fly through them. One, love always assumes the best of the other person. My default mechanism in interacting with you, if I'm going to bear with you, if we're going to bear with each other, if we're going to exalt Christ in the way that we live together in community, we've got to be people who at the onset say, I believe or I assume what's best about you. Two, realize that the word being patient with or bearing with in scripture is used primarily of me and you in relationship to God. That's the way it's used first and foremost in scripture. Let me show you one. The Lord is not slow to keep his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Me. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Three, we make room for differences and faults. Now, as you write that, if you're writing it, you're going, oh, I don't want to even write that. People with different personality types, people with different ideas of faith, we're in the gray areas, they're going, no, I think we should do this or or that, and and we make room. Romans 14 talks a lot about making room room for people in our life who don't think exactly the way that we think. Here's the deal. Most people don't think exactly the way that you think. And for many of us, that's sort of the community ender. And that's why so many of us are lonely, because we don't have room in our lives for differences, for people to think differently than us, act differently than us, and other differences, a different passion. To say, I'm passionate about this. Listen, we need people in the church, in this church, that are passionate about a whole lot of different things. The gospel provides the basis for unity, not uniformity. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And finally, we understand that we're all people in progress and that forgiveness needs to be an ethic that we readily engage in. Finally, he goes on. This is great too. Uh, I don't have it in there. I'm sorry. Verse four. Uh, so no, I did verse three. 
that we bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, let me just point out that if we need to maintain it, that, it me- that means that it's constantly going in a direction other than unity. You don't do maintenance on your car because it's running better and better and better and better. You do maintenance on your car because as you drive it more and more and more, things break down. Here's what the scriptures are saying. That because of us, community has a tendency to break down. And so what the Bible's asking us to do is to be people who long to be community builders rather than community destroyers. To maintain, to to push towards unity. Can I just say really directly, we need people in this church who are going to fight the right fight. And the right fight is we're in this together. The gospel's enough. Jesus has covered us. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. We need to walk humbly because he's been good to us in spite of how we've been. We need to fight for unity. Because our tendency and our natural desire is going to be to constantly steer a little bit away from it. Where we say, I want to be served rather than serve. And I want to have power over rather than walking alongside and walking with. I think it's easier to be a community destroyer than a community builder. I'll just look at my own life. It, it is for me. I was walking with um, I was walking with a guy who's potentially going to rent one of the buildings uh, just to the north of us in our center here. And he was talking about some demo that he's going to need to do. And I said, "Well, hey, if you need if you need demo, call me. Like I, I can't use a tool, but I can swing a sledgehammer." And he goes, "Oh man, like you have no problem finding people to help you with the demo." And I'm like, "Amen." Yeah, you send out that email and you get 50 guys that write back, I'm free. Now here's the deal. You switch it and you want help with the build out. Way fewer guys are going to say, yeah, count me in. Because it's harder to build than it is to destroy. It takes effort to say, I'm going to fight to make this a unified thing, a together thing. It's the natural thing within us to say, no, this is going to sort of drift towards division rather than unity. So we're looking for people. I'm looking for people who want to say, yes, we are in this together. Let me just really quickly. Ways to destroy community. If you wrote ways you can destroy community, assume the worst about people. Fight to find your identity and what people think about you. Have conversations about people rather than with people. Not just community here at church. Those are, those are, friends, those are the quickest ways to destroy any relationship you're in. Your marriage, any clubs you're in, any teams you're on, quickest way to build community. Assume the best about people. Ground yourself in the gospel. You're grounding in the gospel that Jesus loves you today spite of you, is the best thing you can do for any community you're in. 
the best thing you can do for your marriage is ground yourself in the gospel. It frees you to be loved and to give love. The best thing that you can do for your kids, ground yourself in the gospel. The best thing you can do for this church, ground yourself in the gospel. And finally, be willing to have awkward and direct conversations. The best way to build community. So how do we stay zealous for this? Listen to the way that this passage ends. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope. You starting to get a theme here? Any words sticking out? Called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. We have a lot in common, don't we, friends? Don't we, friends? I started to think about this in relationship to, to heaven. And is there any disunity in heaven? No. Why? Because there's one throne in heaven. And there's one person on that throne. And his name is Jesus. And everything in heaven revolves around him. It's about his worship. It's about his name. It's about his glory. And as people bow down and worship that one God, they're unified together around this one throne. And what the scriptures are telling us is there's unity in the body of Christ when we realize who we're worshiping. And any drift away from unity is a drift away from worship. It's a drift away from the gospel. It's putting something else on that throne other than Jesus. And so I want us to be a church that fights to keep him on that throne. To keep him on that throne, to remember that he is good, that we have one hope, one faith, one baptism, one calling, one God. Friends, that's a fight worth fighting, and I'm going to ask you to commit to it, that we fight to keep the main thing, the main thing, and just in case you miss it, the main thing is Jesus. And it always will be here. It always will be. We are going to fight as hard as we can to keep Jesus the main thing. Because in Him, life is found. In Him, community is built and it's maintained And we bear with each other and we find the energy and the strength to to bear with each other. When everything in us says it'd be easier to just run, to to find a different church, to find a different community. Well, here's the only problem is that you go too. That's the only problem is that we follow us. And often the same problems come up. And I'm asking, will you fight? Will you fight to stay together when it's easier to drift apart? Will you fight to maintain unity and grounding in the gospel of Jesus? Will you fight to keep the main thing the main thing?
And the main thing's name is Jesus. And throughout Christian history, we, followers of Jesus, have struggled. And it's as though God knew we would. So we have these things that we call sacraments that remind us. That that jar our memory. The one we get to celebrate today is communion. The Lord's table together. Ideally, it would be one table that we could all gather around and remember who we gather around. That He is good. That His blood covers. That we stand righteous together. But the Bible also warns, hey, don't come to this table too quickly. Don't come to this table, it says in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, if there's something between you and another brother or sister, because... What you're saying in this is we are unified under his blood and under his care and under his love. And for us to then go and live differently wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So I want to encourage you. Do some soul searching before you come. Maybe commit to saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to make that situation right. Whatever the situation is. Maybe it's saying, God, I want your gospel to press on me in such a way that I'm actually I'm able to walk alongside people instead of just over people. That I move from, from being served to serving other people. Examine yourself before you come. And know that His grace is enough. That's what we celebrate. That He is good. That He's been good to us. He hasn't just been good to you. He's been good to and we celebrate that together. The way that we do it here at South is we invite you to come forward and we will in just